0: whose humanity is given more space. Because it's often that white colleagues and male colleagues might be able to make the same mistake as a black or brown woman in the work environment, but the way that mistake is perceived and the way that mistake is punished is different. Because what I see for a lot of BIPOC staff, it is their manager's bias of seeing them as hostile or aggressive or incompetent that has now warped the organization's perception of this person. And so I think sometimes we we don't acknowledge how one person's biases can actually really send someone's career into a tailspin because of where this person sits in the organizational hierarchy.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast to a bonus episode of Queerly Overthinking Surprise! I know we had a wonderful close to season one a few weeks ago. However, I did not want to leave you without something to listen to over the break, so I planned a surprise bonus episode. This is a continuation of my conversation with my guest, Ciara Jones, and my producer, Cass Cooper. In this episode, we'll be talking about the intersection of race, professionalism, and competency, and we'll discuss the impact that your voice, body, and presence make in a professional environment. I'm very excited for this bonus episode, so without further ado, let's dive in. I want to first start this segment off by asking who is typically seen as professional and competent in society and why?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what I want to say, we cannot talk about competency without me mentioning the book Thick by Jesse McMillan Cotton. Cotton and I really recommend that you all pick up this book It's incredible, Uh, and so this book is about her experience as a black woman in America, and something that she talks about in this book, she has a chapter called Dying to be Competent, and she talks about, uh, unfortunately, the the avoidable death of her child um, as a result of medical negligence, and something she mentions in this chapter is, you know, when I told doctors I was in pain, when I told doctors that I think something was wrong, like they did not see me as competent. They didn't believe I could competently describe my experience of my body, of, of the world that I live in, of everything that's happening to me. And she said, my degrees, nothing could hide what my blackness screams when I come into the room, which is that I'm incompetent. And something that I think is really powerful is that she shows us in this chapter that competency isn't a meritocracy. We don't just say, well, people are competent based on their level of education or the level of intellect they show. It's a systematic process of saying who can adequately, adequately uh, describe the reality, whose perception of reality is seen as true, whose perception of reality is objective, and who is not trustworthy. And what we'll see throughout U.S. history is that Black people have been seen as unreliable narrators of our own story throughout U.S. history, LGBTQ people as well, that our truth and our reality is seen as secondary or is seen as falsified. Uh, And so Competence to to Me is really about the ways that we maintain systems of power and privilege by saying, this person actually, their insight and their ideas and their knowledge do not matter, or they actually don't have the ability to adequately describe what they're experiencing. And so competency can be a really complex thing. I think it can create systemic inequality in the prison industrial complex, in healthcare, within our work settings, within education, it's always there, but it's often not named. It's like this invisible menace. (laughs) That's how I think about competency.
1: It's so fascinating you mentioned that because in a previous episode we did with Ben Green, He was talking about how there's such a narrative around being transgender and it sounds like what you're saying there's such a narrative around competency and the reliability and part of it is needing to see it and recognize it and the other part of it is changing that narrative and moving past it and actually like redefining it and allowing it to flourish into what it actually is
0: Yeah, absolutely. And some work that I got to do um, with Cass was uh, I got to do a presentation alongside her around professionalism as a social construct Uh, and professionalism as a social construct. I mean, well, the actual article is professionalism as a racial construct, but people can be nervous about that language. But the reality is professionalism is a racial construct and a social construct. And UCLA Law Review has an amazing article on this. But they talk about all the things that comprise professionalism from appearance to communication um, to I can't even think of all the other things that comprise it right now. But appearance and communication are two of the big ones. Quantity over quality, threshold to stand bias.
2: Paternalism, the idea that someone always needs to be looking at your work and like understanding it and dissecting it. Mm
0: -hmm. Yes, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And even perfectionism. Like I always say perfectionism is really the question of, in work environments and outside of that, whose humanity is given more space? Because it's often that white colleagues and male colleagues might be able to make the same mistake as a black or brown woman in the work environment, but the way that mistake is perceived and the way that mistake is punished is different. In the same way we see it in that prison industrial complex, who has longer sentencing, who is seen as less redeemable, all of that's also happening within competency. And so again, like competency isn't a meritocracy. I think white people, uh, white males particularly, are always already seen as competent And Black women, for example, are always proving competency. And so I think understanding that those two things are happening at all times are are important. Mm, mm -hmm. I think too,
2: like understanding the idea that we're taught to mask these things about ourselves, our places and identity, um, whether it be our race, we can't really mask that, but we can take on these cultural traits that may not be part of our primary upbringing, right? Mm. Not sharing that you're we're out at school or at work or at school or whatever institution you're in, right. We're all taught to mask these things to, Mm -hmm. so that we will appear more competent. So we don't have Mm -hmm. to have these questions of our ability. Right. And then you get in the room. I don't know if y'all have experienced this, but you get in the room and I'm like, I know so much more than them.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) I've been
2: fighting so hard to fit in and to prove that I belong at this table. And in Mm. reality, that's not saying there's nothing I need to still learn, right? Everything Absolutely. I think is figure outable and you can learn things. But I, the way that I think and the way that I've trained my brain to be over time makes me more competent to make these decisions than the people who are making the decision. Mm.
0: Mm.
1: I really appreciate that point, Cass, because I feel like this kind of blends into how does... Voice and body language, and that gender role play into that level of competency. And I love what you touch on. You know the fact that you walked into the room, you'd be like, "I feel like I'm more qualified here than a majority of the people here." <laughs> um, but where can we go from that point forward? Like, what is the next step to more readily understanding that environment and how we currently are in it, and how we can change or influence it?
0: Like so, basically, how do we like kind to transform like this understanding of competency and professionalism, and what does that kind of process look like?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Okay, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have many thoughts on that, and I also want to say, you know, Cass, what you said around like basically working twice as hard to be seen as half as competent is what I really hear you talking about, and I really resonate with that. And I actually, ran a training on professionalism as a social construct recently, and that's what so many Black and Brown people are putting in the chat. Right? Is I'm you don't understand how hard I'm working in this environment to be seen as partially competent. Uh, And so I think a lot of the work, at least the work that I've been seeing, uh, Adam, is helping people understand first that professionalism as a social construct is even happening, because I think a lot of people genuinely have no awareness that this dynamic is happening for them in work environments. And uh, I had a chance to speak with Professor Keisha, Keisha Thomas, who came up with the organizational psychology theory, Pet to Threat, which is a theory that when women enter into workplaces at the beginning of their career, they're kind of. The organization's excited about the optics of hiring them, but they're kind of coddled. Maybe they're denied work or stretch projects. Maybe their managers are double-checking their work, as Cass mentioned, that paternalism. But what she said is, as these same women start to demonstrate the competency markers that would make them, that should set them up for promotion, that should set them up for director-level positions, they are also, they're still not promoted. They stall within the organization. And what she said is, well, we have a bias in this hierarchy that says that only men should be here, only white folks should be here then even if someone breaks that mold, they're not going to be rewarded because that bias breaking is seen as threatening. It's not rewarded. And so I think what's really fascinating is a lot of the work I think begins with corporations even acknowledging and believing that this dynamic is happening. And it starts with corporations also creating clear systems and processes for promotion and pay that don't allow managers' subjective interpretation of BIPOC staff to inhibit their ability to move up in their career. Because what I see for a lot of BIPOC staff, it is their manager's bias of seeing them as hostile or aggressive or incompetent that has now warped the organization's perception of this person. And so I think sometimes we, we don't acknowledge how one person's biases can actually really send someone's career into a tailspin because of where this person sits in the organizational hierarchy and where this person sits. So for me, I've seen it as bias education work, but also systems and processes transformation work. How do we make sure, again, there's clear promotional processes clear pay equity processes that can help people when maybe there's individual harm or interpersonal bias taking place. Mm. Really encouraging people
2: to make relationships outside of their direct business unit. Because it's such a powerful tool for belonging in and of itself, right? Because just getting to know people and having conversations, understanding Mm -hmm. what they do does make you better at your role, right? If you Mm -hmm. have to always interact with a department, but you don't really know them or humanize them at all, it's very easy to get very transactional and just, I need this email answered and that's all. And so encouraging people to have those conversations, we do that in our organization of once a quarter, find somebody who you don't know and have a 15, 20 minute conversation and just get to know them a little bit. But then also what that can do is it helps BIPOC employees specifically or anybody who's in a targeted minority group to be seen as more than just the output of their product, right? And you get to be seen by potential leaders or maybe someone has an idea that they want to share with you or something like that. Tell me more about your project and it helps you to, to really like be seen differently. And being able to put that practice and policy to me, it decreases the likelihood that you're limited by just your manager's report and out of what you're doing and how you're doing it.
0: hundred percent. I'm also a big fan of like sponsorship programs. There's so much talk about mentorship programs, but I want people to have sponsorship programs, which is where you're particularly saying like, here is this like high caliber candidate with their organization, and we want to continue to move them up through the ranks. And so making sure that women, LGBTQ folks, employees with disabilities, uh, black and indigenous people of color employees are having face time with those that can actually help advance their career because what research shows is we're like the least sponsored communities that there just aren't people that are advocating for our promotion within our work environments uh, and so i also like what you said cass about kind of thinking about getting touch points and face times with those who are not your manager so you're kind of expanding your career network and making space for your career ascension And I know for me, actually, in all of my jobs, it has not been my direct manager who has been my deepest advocate. It has been other executives who have seen talent within me that have been advocated for me. Uh, And so I think, you know, expanding that network, even within your organization itself is really important. So thanks for sharing that, Cass. That was great.
2: I love the idea that women specifically are over-mentored and under-sponsored. Let's train you on how you can be best suited for this role, let's take away your individualism. Let's figure out a way to maneuver you within this culture. You know, make sure you dress like those are the things that mentors tend to, to tell you. Whereas a sponsor is like, you're already great. Let's figure out where to put you to maximize your greatness. Those are two entirely different conversations, and both are necessary on some level. But if we work to sponsor people who are in targeted groups more, Even people outside of your organization, right? You got to think across and up and in between. That can help so much as well. Adam and I really have that relationship. I value so much being able to come to him and say, like, what do you think about this from a graphic design standpoint, from a content standpoint, that kind of thing? And then conversely, he can come to me and he can say, okay, well, I have this meeting and this is how I'm going to negotiate it. And this is what I want to say. And we can talk through that, right? That's us advocating for each other, even though I don't know anybody that he works with. He, I don't know nobody that I work with, so right? Like we're trying to make each other our best because that we I want to see you do well,
0: right?
1: <laughs> totally. And I freaking love you, Cass. And I love being able to do that with you.
0: <laughs> I just wanted to hop on what Cass had said about being... Uh, over-mentored and under-sponsored because it really re- comes right back to our conversation that you began, Adam, around competency, right? Like this idea that women and people of color, they're not ascending because they don't have the competency yet. We need to upskill. We need to get more skills. We need to develop. We need to develop. But oftentimes, as Cass is you know, really highlighting, they don't need more development. They just need clear pathways for like ascension and growth. And I really see sponsors as kind of clearing, mowing down that grass so this person can get to the next stage, removing barriers so they can get there. And so I think for a lot of organizations that are only investing in mentorship programs, the question becomes, well, are you making the assumption that those who are people of color, historically disenfranchised, don't have the skills when they likely already do? I mean, especially in tech, I didn't know one black person in tech without an advanced degree. And so people just to break into these spaces, the barrier is so high. Again, they typically don't need skill development. They need pathways to promotion. And so thank you for highlighting that cast. I think it's so important for organizations to hear that. That the bias is coming in, even in the programs and initiatives you're creating to help these communities. And we need to reclaim about that. Great.
1: (laughs) Thinking about everything that we've just talked about, competency, about the societal norms that we are. Trying to work through and to, you know, better understand how we can change and uplift and make a more equitable and inclusive environment. I feel like there's so much progress that we've made, but there's still so far that we have to go. And I want to hear from both of you, Uh, Ciara. If you want to start specifically, what is that? first step right now like where 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 do you feel like we're at and what's the next step do you feel like people need to start internalizing a little bit more
0: yeah I'm actually not uh, optimistic about where we are at currently with diversity equity and inclusion and belonging like I think the I think there's a lot of tension within the field itself tension around what the work actually should be tension about what the results should be within organizations, a lot of disagreement about how to best bring about those results within organizations, and I also think a lack of clarity about who should be driving this work. I see all of these issues within DEI right now. I think some of it is, you know, we're three years post-George Floyd, and I think we're seeing, like, white guilt fatigue because I think guilt was the main driver for DEI getting infused in organizations, and I also think organizations wanting to get ahead of any type of equity issues really drove this interest in this and during the height of George Floyd and the BLM like it was lucrative for organizations to be invested in this like i gained so many th- thousands of followers during that time just because and a lot of anti-racist educators did because there was just this desire to engage with this work but i think some of that engagement again was guilt-oriented and performative so i love i love actually to see like kind of DEI have a reset I think a lot of this work began with labor activists and activists who are curious about what it looks like to transform systems of power and privilege within our corporations. So I'd like to see us kind of get back to our roots and to think about not doing this work for optics, but true systems transformation. And for us to think critically about, again, who's driving the work, getting more clear about the impacts we want to have. And the last thing I'll say is that recently, I think it was Forbes, but I have to double check, put out an article that said like, All these companies now are having DEI reports, but it's more like a show and tell portfolio of like, these are our diverse staff, or like this is like, and so again, I think a lack of clarity about what this work should have been three years ago, what the impact should be now, and how to move it forward. So I'd like us to see go see us go back to those roots and kind of have a, a reset in the sector.
2: I love that you brought up the disconnect in our space as practitioners right now. I think that that is the biggest miss. Because it becomes perceived as lack of competency, honestly. It becomes this, well, this practitioner says we need to be doing this, and this practitioner says we need to be doing this, and who's right and who's wrong. And then it becomes, well, y'all can't decide, so we're not going to do anything. Rather than, uh, for our organization, this is what equity looks like, and these are the policy changes we're making, and this is how we see ourselves impacting the world to be more just. That is a bigger question than how do we hire more black and brown folks? What are we doing to celebrate pride? Is a great question to ask, but are the queer people in our organization having the same access to healthcare that they need, that cishet straight people just get? Is our frater- our paternity and maternity leave comprehensive? Is it, how are we making sure that there's gender affirming care written into our healthcare policy? Those are questions that are about justice and equality and equity, not just putting butts in seats. And I think so many organizations, to your point, want to have this show and tell moment of, look, we changed the entire face of the C-suite. It's like, well, yeah, but are they making the same money as everybody else?
0: And are you only hiring them when the house is on fire? Which is like what we see is like women of color and black women are hired. Like, they're like, uh, this ship is going down. So <laughs> let's pass this off to somebody else. And so it's also like hiring people into roles where they're not supported. Uh, something that a lot of women of color particularly tell me is like, Performance is a moving goalpost for me. I have no idea what's expected of me performance wise. I hit this marker, then I'm told I'm not hitting this other marker. And so, all of these different things, like uh, as you mentioned, Cass, that are happening within organizations that are, can be insidious and can really harm. And I think, especially, organizations can have an emphasis on like diversity pipeline. But the question is, are they getting even through your third or fourth round interview? Are they staying longer than 12 months? Because that's also a part of organizational culture too. Uh, it tells you a lot about what's happening within your org when people don't stay, especially if you're paying them well and you have good benefits, and they're not staying. It's you, <laughs> you know. And I think a lot of organizations don't get that, but it's you.
2: <laughs> or they go to like a competitor. That was always a thing to me. Of like, if you leave, this goes back to when I used to manage a restaurant, and whenever someone would leave the restaurant to work for another restaurant. It was always a question of like, well, they just didn't like working here, right? If someone left and they, you know, went back to school, they moved away, you know, those kinds of things, like people move on because it's just a very transient environment. However, I had a leader once tell me if they move from this restaurant to another restaurant, it means that we did not support them well and they did not like what we were doing here. So we need to look at ourselves, right? Because if they're staying in the same sector, if they're doing a comparable job, and they're getting relatively the same pay. It's it's definitely an environmental problem.
1: I absolutely have loved this conversation, and I feel like I have learned so much. And I just feel like it's just continued to reinvigorate that conversation because I completely agree with you. I feel like the the guilt, you know, specifically that came around after George Floyd, I feel like has been you know, where, where, where are the people? It's been performative. It's everything that we've been talking about. And so to me, I don't want to lose the fire that I gained to become more involved and more passionate and more aware and just everything within this community. So thank you so much for the conversation today. And where can people find you on socials?
0: Yes. Well, one, I want to say thank you again, Adam and Cass, for having me on your amazing podcast. Everyone, please subscribe right now to Queerly Overthinking. Uh, but you can find me at a variety of places on TikTok. You can find me as at The Gardening Theologian. On Instagram, you can find me at The Gardening Theologian. You can also follow my DEI Instagram, which is Ciara Jones Consulting. And you can find me on LinkedIn as Ciara Jones. So please feel free to find me there. Reach out, engage. I always love commenting back and hearing what you all are thinking about
2: Queerly Overthinking is produced by Adam Harper and Cass Cooper. It is edited by Adam Harper with audio mixing by Necessary Outlet Productions. You can follow Queerly Overthinking on Instagram at queerly Overthinking, and find more at www.queerlyoverthinking.com.